Hello and welcome to the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle live today from New York City. I'm on the East Coast soaking in the hopeful Mets, the dreary Knicks and the radiant Nets. Yes, I've been to too much bad basketball this week, but later I'll be looking back on what was before the game at least, the biggest NBA matchup left on the schedule, Celtics versus Cavaliers. I was at the TD Garden for that one, but I want to get straight into my guest today and I'm very happy to say joining me from his home office in New York City, editor-in-chief of the MMQB Monday Morning Quarterback, Peter King. Peter kindly sat down with me to talk about his life in sports journalism, his gruelling routine writing his Monday Morning Monster column, how he secured the Tom Brady interview after the last Super Bowl, his dabbling into the cricket sphere, and so much more. Here's Peter King. So we're back on the US Sports Podcast in New York City with Editor-in-Chief of the MMQB, Peter King. Peter, it's usually you that's doing the introduction to the podcast. I know, this is a little bit strange. The interviewee instead of the interviewer. Have you tried avocado ice cream yet? No, I don't think I could do that. I think it's way too healthy for me. And uh, I'm not sure that that Tom Brady would... uh, would share his recipe. I think that's proprietary information with Brady. We're going to go back a long way, and you'll probably look at my notepad and get a bit scared how much I've written here, but I've seen the college photo from Ohio. Great hair, by the way. When you went to study journalism, what were you setting out to do? Um, you know, I think I had two goals because I knew I wanted to be... I mean, I'm very fortunate. I knew I wanted to be a writer for a long time, but I was not absolutely intent on being a sports writer at all. I thought it would be really fun to cover the Red Sox for the Boston Globe one day, but I didn't. it didn't have to be that. And when I was at Ohio University studying journalism, uh, working for four years at the school paper, I never, I wrote a little bit of sports, but hardly any. And uh, so I thought, I would end up just with a job at some newspaper somewhere and uh, I kind of stumbled into sports writing and I'm happy I did but I think I would have been just as happy covering politics or doing something like that just because I like journalism. Can you remember the first sporting event you went to? Yep, the first one I went to was in 1964 in June at Fenway Park. It was a Red Sox-Yankees game and uh, our whole family went. We had four children my mom and my dad. So the six of us went to Fenway Park and sat through like a two-hour rain delay and watched the Red Sox beat the Yankees 5-3. to three. And there's hardly anybody in the stadium that day. The Red Sox stunk. And a Red, the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry in those days wasn't too great because the Red Sox were lousy every year. But I'll never forget the feeling I had walking up through the... Uh, even on a lousy, rainy, wet day, uh, walking up through the portal and seeing the field for the first time and seeing how incredibly green it was. And I just thought, wow, this is this is heavenly. And I was only seven years old, but I have very fond memories of that day. I think that's the best part about going to a sport game is you walk up the stairs and you see the field. I've, I was listening to Maggie Gray's podcast with you that you did a while ago now, and you yeah. said that one of the things you might like to do running out of time maybe uh, in, in work-wise is to cover a whole baseball season. Yeah. Now, I thought it would be quite cool if you could do a minor league, follow a minor league player, and what better to do than Tim Tebow right now? Yeah. How do you think you would cover that, and would you want to cover Tebow? 
Um, well, I think I would probably rather cover somebody who might be a draft choice that had a really good chance to make it and just to see his trials and tribulations. I'm not saying Tebow won't make it. And as a matter of fact, Tim Rohan of the MMQB is is uh, working on a very long Tim Tebow story now, and it's it's extremely interesting and compelling. And although I believe mostly it's a sideshow, I think Tim Tebow desperately wants to play in the major leagues because he loves being an athlete. He loves sports. So that's that's just a different story. But I think sort of the 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 hard road through the minor leagues in baseball, it's pretty much different than almost anything that you see in sports uh, in America. And I think it would be really fun to follow one person and his road from the moment he got drafted and then the four or five or six years of training before he got to the major leagues but then you have to pick out somebody they may fail they may succeed you know they may never play one day in the major leagues so then the story would be almost kind of a bad news story but it would be interesting and I think I I'll do something different someday I just really don't know what it is right now I'm intrigued with everything going on in football, good and bad. And I, I think personally there's been a lot more negative recently. If you love football 10 out of 10 when you started this job, how many out of 10 right now? Um, well, I view the game differently than the job. I, I love the job as much as I ever did. And I love covering football because it's really interesting and really different and because there's 1690 players in professional football and that probably turns over about 600 per year there's always new stories interesting stories so that part of it um it's definitely still 10 out of 10 but the game itself um it's it's disturbing sometimes, uh, quite often, when you hear all of the players who uh, who uh, year after year after year uh, le- either leave the game early, or um, you know, in the case of some players who played a couple of generations ago, either are having severe brain problems um, or something, and. So for that reason, there's no question you have to look at football with a jaundiced eye. And you have to say that, uh, I mean, if I had a, a son uh, and I now have a grandson and I really hope his parents don't let him play football. I mean, not ever. But, but what I'm saying is tackle football at a young age, I think, is way too much of a risk for any parent to take um, with their children. And so uh, I think there is a point where you could make an educated decision about whether you wanted to play football. But even Drew Brees and and many players, Drew Brees said, I will not allow my boys, uh, my sons, to play football, uh, you know, tackle football 
I, 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 he's not sure whether he's going to, I think, or not. But he won't let them play tackle football, contact football, until they're in high school. And that, to me, is a sensible way to look at it. Uh, but again, you know, football's been tarnished, and I think a generation from now is when we'll really know whether what the NFL is doing and what the NFL is trying is really having much of an impact on the long-term health of its veteran players. Your Monday morning quarterback column is is a monster, to put it one way. Uh, Peter's watching the Red Sox at the moment, loyalty, yeah. loyalty at its best. Um, some people, a lot of people say quality over quantity, but I think your column is both. And if we were going to change it into a layered cake, what are the various steps to, to creating that cake? Well, most times during the season, um, I'll start my work for the Monday column on the previous Thursday, where I'll start to think, first of all, one of the reasons why uh, the column is the way it is, is that I'd say 60% of it is based on what happens on Sunday. But you can you can definitely do things in advance of that and sometimes some really thoughtful things. Um, and so that's why, to me, I don't have a... I don't have a... Um, there's no... There's no recipe every week for doing this column. I don't do it the same way. You know, and this in the off season it's totally different. I mean, this week, um and and so we're recording this on a Saturday. And four days ago, Tony Romo uh left football to the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys left football uh to be the number one broadcaster at CBS. So I wanted to, I wrote something the next day about this, but I wanted to try to put Romo in a little bit of perspective and I wanted to try to look at Romo's career in a different way. And so uh, on Thursday night, I got a hold of Sean Payton. Now, Sean Payton now is the coach of the New Orleans Saints, but he was the first position coach in the NFL that Tony Romo had. And it was Sean Payton with the Dallas Cowboys as his quarterback coach who basically, you know, helped birth his professional football dreams, uh, Romo's. And so we went way back in time to the time when he was an undrafted free agent coming out. And why in the world did this happen? An undrafted guy very, very seldom does an undrafted free agent come in and play great at quarterback? I mean, very seldom. And so how did it happen? And we went over everything. And so I always try, if if I can, to find a way to tell the story that everyone is talking about in a different way. So that is the way that, in my opinion, if somebody were to say, what's the goal of, of your Monday morning quarterback column? And my goal would be to say that I want to write the best story about what everybody is talking about, but I also want to write a different story than what everyone is writing or doing on television. And that is what I always think about, especially when we're talking about a story that everybody has been 
really kind of consumed with for a few days in the United States. I saw the t-shirts that they sell, MMQB, the dog under the desk, the baseball, the coffee. <laughs> yeah. You're up quite, you're up very late um, or very early, if you put it another way. What are the essential things that you need during the night? And, and has that taken a physical toll on you, do you think? Yeah, the the physical toll it takes really strangely, I think, is sort of on, uh, you know, I've gotten to the point now where because both of my brothers died prematurely, died before their time. And so I've become a little bit obsessed with kind of working out and my health. And so, um, you know, I try as best I can during the season to work out with a trainer five days a week. And when you're up all night on Sunday night into Monday, Monday is really kind of a washout of a day. Um, if, if I have to do something, occasionally I'll go to a game. It's really hard to do after not having gone to bed Sunday night. Um, and I think, so I think that's part of it. But I also think that if I l- didn't love doing it, I wouldn't do it. And so it's not anything that is really more of, it's not pleasant really at 4.30 in the morning when you're still, when you've got maybe 800 words left to write and you can't keep your eyes open. I mean, it's just not, it's not fun. But that is about the only part of my job that quite literally, that's the only part of my job that I could say is not fun. I mean, because I enjoy everything else. I enjoy the thinking about the constructing the column. I enjoy writing it. I enjoy trying to come up with a statistic or a, um, or a uh, little factoid that nobody else would think of uh, or has thought of. And it's just, it's a challenge every week really to try to keep it fresh. Do you think your position within the NFL uh, field is sometimes a detriment to how you can report things because you are close with so many people? That's a good question. I mean, I think yes and no. Um, because honestly, I mean, I was I was extremely close to Bill Belichick for a long time. And I wrote some things and said some things in 2007 uh, about um, his, uh, about the 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 spygate the the penalty that caused the uh the patriots to get sanctioned back in 2007 um uh, dealing with a violation of NFL rules about how you can use video and taping the other team sidelines um and so i mean i was pretty harsh on belichick and he hasn't talked to me in 10 years and, you know, Sean Payton was a guy who I was extremely close to uh, in 2013 when the, uh, uh, when the uh, 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 sanctions came down from the NFL, um, you know, the Bounty Gate sanctions on the Saints. And I wrote pretty harshly about the Saints. And just recently I've started to talk to Payton again, but there was a long time where you know, he'd walk by me like I wasn't there, you know. And so it's all I can say is this. I I do try to maintain close relationships with people. But over the years, if I've had to write some really difficult things about people, I I do it because that's my job. And I let the chips fall where they may. 
But have you scaled your reporting back in a in a sense after Belichick, after Peyton? Has it made you think about what you what you will say and what you will report? No, not at all. It's you have to do it. I do the exact same thing with the Patriots. I do, I do the same thing with the Saints. You know, I if you feel like you know the Saints thing is a perfect example. I, at the time, the MMQB didn't yet exist. And so I was writing for Sports Illustrated, and my assignment was to write a potential cover story on the NFL throwing the book at the Saints through this bounty scandal. And so my assignment is not, you know, maintain your relationship with the people who you really know well with the Saints while writing this story. The, my assignment is write this story. And sometimes the chips fall uh, and you cost yourself a relationship with somebody. And that's just, that's the way life goes. You can't, you can't not write something. I mean, if I didn't write what I felt was the truth about something uh, because I was worried that it would affect my relationship with somebody, I would really be bothered. And so I... I just try to write what the truth is. So Skip Bayless moves to Fox. He's paid a lot of money, which backs up this idea of everyone's obsessed, especially young people, about the hot take, news now, get in first, and Stephen A. Smith, first take, shows like that. What do you think of, of that kind of... Because garbage for me. I don't like it because it's not, it's not honest. It, it, seems, it feels scripted. What do you make of those shows and, and, and what an audience wants nowadays? Well... You know, I think those shows are a little bit different than... I mean, they're not, they're not journalism, really. They're just opinion. They're kind of talk shows on TV. And so I'm not particularly bothered by them. If people want to watch people... Basically, what those guys are, are, you know, 25, 30 years ago, they were newspaper columnists who every day would throw Molotov cocktails at the sports world and those still exist but now they exist on tv and they're getting paid whatever three or four million dollars a year i don't even know what they're making but i mean a lot of money and you know so i i don't have anything against them it's fine it, and and it has a place and you know america will vote with its tv remote basically if if people want to watch skip bayless on Fox, they'll watch him and Fox will pay him a lot of money. And if Fox finds that they're not getting the ratings for his show uh, when his contract is up, they'll move on and they'll do something else. But it's a battle in TV, I think, to find things that people will want to watch. In many cases, my feeling is that in many cases, the problem... Um, you know, with with sort of what we do now and like at the MMQB, one of our problems is that, you know, people, advertisers are not paying for journalism the way that they used to. Uh, and that, if it continues, is going to have a huge impact on what people read, what they experience, what they see. And I'm not saying that that uh you know if 
if my website dies or if other websites die who are really into journalism, um, that it's the end of the free world. It isn't. It's people, you know, people have a right to advertise what they want, pay for what they want, read what they want. So, so be it. But my only point is that I think that there are so many shows like First Take and so many personalities who are looking at the sports world and not just in football, but everything, and who are having very strong opinions that, I mean, there's a place for that. My point is long term, there also needs to be a place for people who do good stories. I mean, we got a Jenny Varentis and Robert Klemko at the MMQB just spent three or four weeks on this Tom Brady stolen jersey story. Klemko went to Mexico for it. Um, you know, and, and it's just, those are the kind of stories with a lot of new and interesting information, uh, in them that, you know, need to be done. And if they're not done, or if there, if there's one fewer outlet to do stories like this, whether it's ours, whether it's anybody else, that hurts all of the storytelling that goes along with uh, everybody's love of these sports. So I'm just hopeful that over time that people don't look at, you know, talk shows like that and say that's all there is. Well, attention spans have a a lot to do with that. Here with Peter King of the MMQB, you had Tom Brady on your podcast right after he won his fifth Super Bowl title. The story behind how you booked that, as it were. Boy, that was such a fun thing to do because uh, two years ago when the Patriots won the Super Bowl against Seattle, I found him right after the game in their locker room and I said, hey, later in the week after things have died down, love to talk to you and go through the last two drives. Um, And he said, yeah, no problem. Um, Just give me a couple of days. And so I reached out to him. Um, and we ended up talking on the phone for maybe 60 minutes. Um, and so I wrote my column on that, on Brady and what happened, you know, in his two drives against the Seattle Seahawks that resulted in touchdowns and the Patriots won that Super Bowl. Well, this one, um, I wrote an email to him overnight right after I finished Monday morning quarterback. And I said, Hey, listen, uh, you know, congratulations, and and I, you've uh, I, this year. If you'd be willing to do it, I'd like to do something a little bit different. I'd like to actually come and see you and do this in person. Um, I really feel like this is going to go down in history as uh, really the most exciting Super Bowl there ever was, and uh, the biggest, uh, obviously, the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history, and it'll be the most memorable game in your career. Whether or not it's the best game, you know, we could argue. But uh, And I really want to take this to another level. And I might want to record it for posterity. And so I didn't hear from him for a couple of days. And I said, wow, well, we'll see. And uh, then finally he said, okay, um, let me think about it. We'll figure it out. And then he, he, he asked me, he said, I'll give you a choice. You can either see me in Boston on Friday or in Montana on Sunday. So obviously, what am I going to do? I mean, you you want to see him 
you know, I'd much rather see him in Montana in some very different place. So that's what ended up happening. I went out to see him and uh, it was amazing. You fly into this little airport in Montana, get in the car, you drive for about an hour and 15 minutes and you end up and you're in the middle of the most pristine, beautiful mountain village that I've ever seen. And and what happened was uh, he he uh, he's having his own home built and he has a home there that he was using, that he was living in while the, his house is being built. And he was there with his wife, Giselle Bunchen, and then his kids. And so uh, we sat there in this cabin, um, just me and him, and we talked. And he held my microphone for my podcast, you know, the MMQB podcast with Peter King. And he held it. And, um, you know, he was so good in the podcast. I think the reason he was good is that I had told him, look, someday you know, I'll I'll give you a recording of this. And if your kids ever want to know, you know, dad, what happened in that second half against the Falcons here, we're going to, you're going to tell them this is one week after the game. These are vivid, crystal clear memories you have, you know? And so we recorded it. We went on for about, I think, 76 minutes. And uh, he was better than I had ever heard him before. And I think he was better in part because I had gone back and done a lot of research about the game. And I didn't ask him, so what happened on this play? I I asked him very specific questions. I saw you do this with your eyes on a specific play. And and so he remembered so well. He's like a golfer when he's trying to relive what happened back on the seventh hole and why did he choose, why did you choose to use the three iron rather than, you know, the five wood or something, you know? Um, but that was, that was really a lot of fun. And the, the one reason why I liked it the most is that, you know, Tom Brady is probably the most sort of inspected athlete in the United States. And he's the most, uh, he is for, for better or for worse and, and all that. He, he, there's more attention on Tom Brady than any American athlete today, even LeBron. And in my opinion, this is the first time I've ever heard Tom Brady at that length be so introspective about his life, about what makes him tick, and about the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. So it was a, that was a memorable day. And you know, you forgot one thing. Giselle took the photo, Peter. That's the most important thing of this whole day. No, the most important thing of this day is that when I met her, she kissed me on both cheeks. She gave me the old South American slash European greeting, and uh, was it two or three? No, it was two. Um, it was two. You've told me that there there also is a third, but no, I I didn't get the three. I only got two. Well, I think Italy is three. I'll have to check <laughs> check my sources on this one. I'm going to take you way back to 1980, Cincinnati Inquirer, when you got into this job. Yeah. I think one of the real skills of this job is to interview in the locker room because players either half naked, eating food, they don't want to talk to you, some are great. What did you learn about that specific skill when you when you started the Inquirer? Well, it was sort of an intimidating beginning to my career because there was a baseball team in Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Reds, 
that at the time were sort of in decline from having won two World Series a few years earlier. And they were, they had huge stars on their team. And uh, they were the most, they were the most star filled team in all of baseball. And so I walked into this locker room because I was the backup Reds writer. That's one of the jobs I had. I had three different jobs there. So all their home games, I went to their games and I had to kind of forge a relationship with these guys who were going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. So, um, but that was, I, I remember, you know, that, um, you know, I really remember that you really, you get what you give. That's how I've always felt about how you write about people, how they treat you, how you interview people. And what I mean is that if you are respectful with them and uh, you do your job with earnest, with an earnest respect, um, that no matter how young you are, even though I was only 23 or 24 at the time, I think they're going to be okay with you. And I learned that if you do your work and you ask professional questions that are, that are not just, hey, so what happened on that home run? Uh, you know, you have to you have to come into it with a little bit of a different way. You have to say, Hey, it was a, you know, it was a three and one count. You know that the pitcher has to throw a fastball there. You think he does because he doesn't want to walk you. And, you know, so you try to ask some sort of intelligent question and, um, you know, but the other thing I learned early on is that it's really about working and you really have to, um, you know, if if the clubhouse for the Reds was open at 3.30 in the afternoon, I'd always try to be there at 3.15 in case they open a few minutes early and so I could get in there first. Now, who knows? Maybe none of the guys would be in there yet or whatever, but I, I just always felt like competitively I wanted to be, I wanted to try to, um, you know, stake my claim and make sure that they knew that I was really serious about this job and I was going to get there early and I was going to, whether or not they were a good team, bad team, whatever, it was all about trying to do the best job I could at that specific time. So I think work ethic was probably as important as anything else covering a team, especially when I was so young doing it. And is that what made you who you are now, the, the work ethic, the, the fact that you would approach anyone and you'd get there early? I don't know. I mean, I, I think probably so, but um, I think that would really be for other people to judge. I mean, I, my biggest, I think the biggest challenge I had was when I moved to New York to cover the Giants for a paper in New York City. And the... Um, the challenge really was at the time there were 19 daily newspapers covering the New York Giants football team and it was just really incredibly different from working in Cincinnati you know where there's two papers in Cincinnati and so uh, you, you you have to you have to really try to figure out man how am i going to succeed here and so you have to always think about what you can do that will be better than somebody else. And even, I mean, it's what I tell our young writers at the MMQB now. I say, 
you know, if you're, if there's somebody else, if you know that somebody else is doing a story, say on Tim Tebow, you know, you, you have to find out what they're doing as much as you can about who they've talked to. You know, you don't want to be a spy, but you want to find out kind of what their angle is and what they're working on and what they're doing if you can. And then you have to say, I'm, I'm going to be better. And here's how I'm going to be better because everything in life is about competition, I think. And it makes everybody better. And if I always thought that if there were a lot of people covering a beat, uh, you know, I had to find a way to do something that none of them were doing. Dwight Clark has ALS, the former San Francisco 49ers wide receiver. You've already written about it. Do you think this is resonating yet with teenagers, these stories coming out yet? Because for me, a lot of parents will say to their kids, don't do this, it's not safe, and you won't listen to them. Is that generation listening yet to these stories? Um, I think it depends on what part of the country you're from. Uh, I have thought for a long time that the Dwight Clark story and the Steve Gleason story, he has ALS. Derek Jensen, a former NFL player, just died this week of ALS. And I've thought that uh, for many parts of the country, those stories are having a tremendous impact on kids and whether they play football and parents and whether they let their kids play football. Now, is it having a big impact in Florida? I doubt it. In Texas, no. I mean, they're building stadiums, 35,000-seat high school football stadiums in Texas. So they need somebody to play in those stadiums. So there aren't a lot of people down there saying, uh, let's stop playing football. And so for all the people who say football is going to die, well, football might die in New York. It might die in Connecticut. might die in Massachusetts at some point, not, not imminently, but it might. It's not going to die in Texas or Florida or Georgia or Alabama. It, it's just not. And I mean, it might, 50 years from now it might, but it's not going to die now. Do you get more of a kick out of TV and podcasts now than you do writing? Um, I really like doing the podcast. That's been fun. Um, I don't like doing TV, but I think um, I still like my Monday column better than anything else because you can just invent whatever you want to invent every week. And, you know, like today, it's Saturday, and I'm thinking about, I'm looking at what has been in the media all week. I'm looking at what I can do that everybody will say when they wake up Monday morning. Oh, that's a little different. Like, for instance, this week, there's a, there's a, a running back named Christian McCaffrey who's coming out in the draft. He's from Stanford University. He's a unique football player because he probably can play three different positions equally well. And everybody's trying to figure out in the NFL exactly what he is. So I just called about 15 people this week and I said, what is he and where do you think he's going to, uh, where do you think he ends up going in the draft? What number overall? And so I'm just going to write that about Christian McCaffrey as part of my column on Monday. And, you know, so you just try to find things that everybody is talking about and thinking about and, you know, finding a new and a different way to do it. 
Having said that, though, I understand that people don't read the way they used to read. That's one of the reasons why I'm so into the podcast as a medium, because I think there's a good chance that the podcast genre is really going to grow. And just conversational stuff, like... I mean, I, I don't know what it is now. It's probably about 170,000 people have listened to the Tom Brady podcast. And I think it's because they want to hear Tom Brady converse with somebody, not not purposely evade questions in a press conference. And so that, and that's what really has been fun to try to talk to people as people uh, about their lives and everything more than just, what happened on that play in the fourth quarter so but i i still like i still like the writing i like the podcast and i really like tv i'm i'm pretty lucky Hundred seventy thousand. that's going to be 10 less than this episode i think <laughs> of course everybody listens to the max whittle podcast um stick to sports is a popular mantra these days you've brought into your column or you've done done it for a long time talking about your personal life whether it be in 10 things the travel notes why was there any particular reason why you wanted to bring that out? Well, I started the column in 1997, and my editor at the time, I mean, I just vaguely had heard of the internet 20 years ago. And my editor said, well, I want you to write a column and just take whatever you have left over after your week of reporting, whatever you have left over, put it in this column, and uh, try to uh, add some personality to it. Put some of yourself in the column. And that's what I did. I mean, it was not any, no, you know, there was nothing, there was nothing of, you know, I want to be a big star or anything like that. It was just, I was doing what the company asked me to do, and I went at it full throttle. I, You know, like when... When my daughters played uh, uh, sports in high school in New Jersey, I and and I went to a great game. I'd write about it. It used to drive half the people crazy, and the other half of the people would write in and they would say, "Man, I just love when you write about high school sports. It's like the universal language because everybody, uh, the vast majority of people who read my column, will either have a son or daughter playing high school sports." They'll know somebody who plays high school sports or they'll they'll have some connection to it. And so I think that really became the kind of thing that became a little bit of a lightning rod that I write too much about my personal life. But I always say, I've always said to people that in an average week, I probably write, I don't know, five to eight hundred words about my personal life. And that is essentially about maybe 8% of my column in a given week. And I just say, if, if you don't want to read it, just skip over it. There's a lot of football in there too. There was one disappointing time when I read your column. I met you in 2015 at the end of the year and uh, it was with Don Banks. And yeah. he said, you know what, Max, Pete's gonna be, you're going to be in Pete's column this week just because we randomly met. And I, I, I remember I was in New York, in Brooklyn, I scanned through the, I was so excited for this column. I got down to the travel note and I didn't see anything. And I thought, and it was the only, t but the, the, that part of the column wasn't in there. 
and I thought it's a bit it's sod's law that the one time I thought I might get a mention didn't, didn't even <laughs> it's make what? it. What? What oh, did you say? Sod's law. What's sod's law? It, so it means that if you are if you have one day of the week where you're not going to be in the office, it will definitely rain on that day. That's sod's law. <laughs> I love I love British expressions. What's your favorite? Well, not necessarily. Uh, how about how about? Uh, uh, well, I love I love schedule, even though that's not that's not a, that's not a phrase necessarily. It's just a fantastic pronunciation. It's the way we should pronounce schedule. Um, I also really like bits and pieces. I really like that because that's what they are. You know, little et cetera type things. Yeah, let me look at those bits and pieces. I always used to tell my dad, it's schedule, dad, because I was a half American growing up loving basketball. And he said, no, Max, you've got to say schedule. But it doesn't make sense to me. It's like school. You wouldn't say shul. I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, you raise some really uh, fantastic points. And I'm sure that's why you're so good at your job. I'll give you a good word. Naf. Do you have naf here? I don't know what naf is. Terrible, bad. That's naf. Oh, yeah? So. What about Groovy. You groovy Austin Powers yeah, Gro- yeah groovy baby yeah yeah I use groovy a lot and people think that I live in 1968 um do you see yourself covering the NFL for much longer and 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 what would something else be to you I don't know I've been thinking about that a lot I'd really like to write my column a little bit longer if I can um I mean, I think it would be fun one day to cover a political campaign. I think it would be fun one day to cover a full baseball season, Um, you know, starting in spring training, going from February to Halloween. Um, I think that would be fun. But when I say fun, I wonder, too, sometimes if it would take a lot of the enjoyment out of it because I like going to a baseball game and having three beers, too. And you can't go cover a baseball game and have three beers. Um, so I, I, you know, and it isn't that that I couldn't go to a game and work it, and and it and it wouldn't be enjoyable. I don't mean that, but I mean right now, baseball for me is absolute total leisure, or leisure, as it were, leisure, leisure. Um, and so, if baseball right now is leisure then what would it be if it were employment? And I wonder about that sometimes. But, you know, I don't know. I really, I don't really know what I'll do. I've also thought it might be fun to teach, you know. And uh, so, I don't know, I'll do something that'll be fun. You've never drunk a beer on assignment? Uh, no, I, I must say that I did once. When I was first starting to cover baseball, I was covering a red a Cincinnati Reds game in uh, St. Louis. And at that time, this would have been about 1981, I think, 80 or 81. Um, there was a Budweiser, there was a tap in the press box, Budweiser, right there on press row. And so all the writers there were having a beer during the game. So I said, oh, I guess that's what you do. So I did. And I said, man, this is fun. Um, but that's where Anheuser-Busch is from, St. Louis. So anyway, uh, but that's, I think that's my time. I, th- I think that's when I did it, yeah. 
I found a column on SB Nation about your daughter Laura who wrote you a Father's Day letter back in 2015. Yeah. Uh, it was just after you wrote about your support for her in the MMQB. She married her now wife, Kim. And she talked about a story as well about how you f- a woman was evicted from her home and you saw her in a car park in New York City. And she actually was saying this to you and you, you withdrew a month's rent for her. Is that true? It, yeah, I helped a woman out one time um, in New York. Um, I don't know why. I, it just hit me that day, that moment. Uh, but that column was uh, that column was a was a really emotional column for me to read because Laura, for so long, had been. I think she'd been afraid to tell us that she was gay. You know, my wife and I, and we were so. I mean, I, I mean, I can't. There was never a moment where I said, "Oh my God, Laura's gay," or even whether it be for my unhappiness or my thought that she was going to have a hard time because, at some level, uh, gay people are still discriminated against in some parts of our society, and so, but I never, for one time, thought of that at all. And I was so happy when she told us because she was happy. And I think, honestly, since that happened and since she was married, it's far and away the happiest she's ever been in her life and the most at peace she's ever been in her life. And that was a, it was kind of an emotional time for us, and it was, it was just really a sweet thing for her to do. I, I just... I, I don't know how... I mean, I don't know... I don't know how... We always think when you raise kids, you always think that um, you always just want them to grow up and be happy and do something that they really want to do. But and you worry about them along the way. And, and I used to have some worries about Laura, um, but I'm, you know, as a parent, I'm just so thrilled that she found somebody she loves and she found something to do that she really likes and is having a happy life because i think it people forget sometimes that you're human too right they all they read your column and that's it that the only thing you can do is the nfl nothing else i mean forget that you're a father and a husband and everything else so are you you that i feel like you're the center of, of the king family is that is that right yeah i i think so and uh but i've always kind of been a uh I'm probably a little bit, un- well, unfortunately, I'm probably a little bit, uh, oh, I, I probably need to be in charge a little bit too much. And sometimes, especially when you're a parent, you know that you really shouldn't be that way, that it's more important to, um, you know, be yourself and everything, but also to to let people um, bloom and let them blossom and you know let them have their lives and don't always be so omnipresent and so but look i'm I'm really fortunate for my extended family too, including <clears throat> you know my sister in law in england and and her son and daughter and her daughter is uh married and has two kids and a third on the way. So, you know, we're, we're a, 
we're a kind of an international family and it's kind of cool. How's being a grandfather? I really like it. I, you know, it's funny. You, when I was a dad and my kids were extremely little, I mean, I was kind of fighting for my life covering the New York Giants and really trying to establish myself in the business. And so I think sometimes I, you know, I tried to be as good a father as I could, but I probably wasn't there quite as much as I could have or maybe should have. Um, and, you know, my wife was just the hero of the family. Um, but I, I really, it's so uh, it's so fun to have your grandson in your arms and just look and say, wow, that's that's uh that's our that's that's ours that's really it's just fun it's it's a nice thing and everybody told me how much it would it would sort of change you and everything like that i don't feel like i'm changed i just feel like there's a fantastic new addition to my life last couple of questions peter king here in new york city uh you're in london ironically tomorrow right uh well yeah i fly tomorrow and get there monday morning yeah so this podcast will be up by the time you're in London. I'll still be here. I would, I would have loved to have shown you around. But first of all, what's the most British thing you've ever seen in the U.S.? The most British thing I've ever seen in the U.S.? Um, that's a good question. I would say probably... I'd say probably... Jeez, uh, uh, I saw... Where did I see Beckham? I saw Beckham somewhere. <laughs> now I can't remember where it was. But I'm trying to remember. I, I, whenever I think of like real British things, I think when I was a kid and my brother uh, went to college for two years at Cambridge and he would come home and he would bring home like, he'd bring home, he brought home Adidas sneakers one time, at, you know, his gifts. And we said, oh my God, they don't sell these in the United States. And you felt like you had something that nobody else had. And now nothing is only sold in one place. Everything is international. But What did your brother do at Cambridge? He studied English. And he, was, he went to William & Mary, which is a college in Virginia. And then he got a scholarship offer uh, to go overseas, which he, which he did. And that's where he ended up meeting his wife. And, and he just totally fell in love with England. And then lived in uh, in uh, uh, Kingsclare for a while, and then for like the last, I'm thinking like eighteen, twenty years of his life, he lived uh, right near Northampton. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I, whenever I would go and visit him, I would see him there. But he just loved the countryside, and he loved he he really he and his wife loved everything about it. They loved the long walks and walking through sheep pastures and things like that. Was, and we really have grown to love it there a lot. What's the first thing you're going to do? Because you're going to be in the big city. Yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking I'm going to take a nap. I've got the afternoon free on Monday. So there definitely will be a pint somewhere. Um, I just don't have any idea where. Um, but the one thing I do know that I'll do because I'll have the afternoon free. I'll probably wake up and then go for about a three-mile run somewhere, which is, you know, and 
I'll have my Fitbit on. I'll be able to judge how far I've gone. And just, I just, I really love it there. And I love, you know, the last, one of the last things I ever did with my brother, Ken, before he died, um, we went to, uh, you know, he took me uh, to see a cricket match. Where where was it? uh, Lords, the Oval? We went to see it at Lords. But, so, we parked the car. And he said, hey, do you want to go see Abbey Road? I said, what are you you talking about? He goes, we're going to go see where the picture was taken for, you know, the Abbey Road photo. And I said, you got to be kidding me. And it's the same. Oh, wait a minute. I know another word now. Zebra. I love zebra. There was a zebra crossing. And uh, which we got into a long discussion. I said... That's one word you just can't change. It has to be zebra. He said, no, 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 zebra crossing is much better. We've never said JZ. We say JZ, but it's the only time <laughs> we'll say Z. But anyway, so uh, I went to, we, we took our picture walking across Abbey Road like we were the Beatles. And then we walked over to Lords, and we saw England against West Indies. And it was so much fun that on Monday... Um, I was leaving to come home on Monday. And I forget, it was like in the afternoon that my flight was. And so he happened to mention, hey, they're going to finish like the last couple of hours are going to be Monday morning. They didn't finish on Sunday. And he said, do you want to go? I said, of course I want to go. And so we ended up going. uh, And what I was really proud of by the time the game ended, um, I don't know, I'm guessing it was about 2 o'clock maybe or something like that. And what I'll never forget was I said to him, look, you go home. I'm going to take the tube. Because I was taking... Tube. Yeah, well, I say the tube. So, and I, and I said, I- I'll figure it out. And I forget exactly how I did it, but I took the tube. I changed somewhere, I think Piccadilly or something. And then when I got out, whatever line I was on, I got out, I was right in the middle of the Delta Terminal at Heathrow. And I said, man, I am really, uh, I'm an expert traveler. I didn't even, I just looked on the wall and figured out, okay, here's where I need to go, so let's go. But that was really a lot of fun. Not only seeing the cricket, but having a little bit of a travel adventure. You're a Londoner is what you are. I like London a lot. How do you not like London? I've been there three years now and I, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. I, I guess it's like New York City. It ropes you in. But that's fascinating that you went to a cricket game because you love baseball. Yeah. You're one of the few Americans, I'm guessing, that can appreciate cricket as well yeah. because we have test matches that go on for five days and I'm yeah. presuming that's what you were that's at. That's what I saw, yeah. What did you... Did you find anything similar to baseball? Would, could you see yourself being a fan of cricket? Yeah, it's interesting. My brother, Ken, um, became a huge fan of two games, cricket and rugby. Um, he likes soccer. In fact, his last like four or five years that he lived, he got roped into a, a fantasy soccer league. You know, so he really had to learn all these guys, you know. And so, um, but I, and so he... Whenever I would go over there, if there was a game on, we would absolutely always go. Or, or not always go. We'd always watch it. 
and he would explain it to me. The fun thing about cricket, I thought, is that there's really in the stands this there's an interesting sense of community because we got to talk at great length with the people who were sitting around us. And at one point, it was somebody's birthday in our row. And they had cupcakes. Or no, they had some kind of cake. But And so uh, they quite literally, they passed it down the row. And I had a piece of somebody's birthday cake. And it was just a fun deal. And it just, there's a sense of community. It also really impressed me the way that people carry their beer. They have these little carriers. The, yeah, they have these little carriers, these thick paper carriers. And you get these beers and come back to your seat. And I mean, I don't know how much beer that is, but there's a lot of beer in each one of those cups. And there's no way in the world that you could ever finish four of those. I mean, I guess I could try, but that would be a challenge, really. But that was fun. It's actually the start of the cricket season in April, so similar, same to baseball. So if, if you can... 2020 is the new version. I've been, I've been to one. Oh, you have? Yeah, my, my, uh, my niece's husband, Johnny, took me to one in Birmingham uh, when I was there last year. And it was really fun. We took the train to uh, Birmingham, um, and then we got out and walked. It was a long walk. It was probably, I bet it was two miles. But it was a long walk. But that was that was really, really a lot of fun to see that because it was different. And they had, you know, they had stuff on the scoreboards. It was a more it was more of an American sports experience, you know, like in between the action. There was a lot of stuff going on, which is different than at the test match. Your English readers love you even more now. Um, That's for sure. Knowing that you like cricket. Last question. If you stop covering football tomorrow, would you still watch it? Definitely. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't necessarily root for a team. Because I, I, I don't root for a team. When I grew up, I loved the New York Giants. But then I covered them when I moved to New York. And you soon find out that you cannot be a fan when you're a sports media person. You just can't. I can't. Now, I can be a fan of a team in a sport that I don't cover you know, like the Red Sox in baseball, but um, I would watch, and quite honestly, I would watch not only for the competition, but I would watch players who I've gotten to know and who I have a high regard for. And I would, I would enjoy watching their career arcs and just basically seeing how they were doing and what happened to them. But I don't think... I would not become a fan of a team. It just doesn't feel like... I don't feel like I... I I don't feel like I would ever develop that. But I do feel like I would watch the games and I'd be really, really interested, uh, but probably more interested in the people that play them than the outcome of the games. Peter, this has been an absolute pleasure. I know not a lot of people get to do this, so I'm very, very grateful. Oh, thanks, Max. I appreciate it. And I know you're... uh, I really admire how uh, into your job you are. I think it's fun. It's fun to watch. It's fun to watch you on Twitter. 
I was watching last week and you were tweeting from a Nets game and I said, this is the only person who admits that he's at a Nets game. Never mind tweeting from it. But anyway, I get a kick out of it. And you're, even though you're probably the only person in all of Great Britain who knows who Brooke Lopez is, I, I guess there's something to be said for that. Well, I'm glad you're watching and uh, I'll see you very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Max. So every journalist I've spoken to who has a story in their career, we, we go over their career, they always talk about that one interview where they couldn't quite believe what they were doing when they were younger. And, and that for me was it right there with Peter because I've followed him for so many years and you see the videos that he does on the top of his long column on a Monday or Wednesday and you think, ah, oh, that's probably his home, that's probably his home office. Just, so to step in there and see all the books he has the sports books and the framed pictures of the green monster and he's got the red Sox on the tv he absolutely loves the red Sox, and he's he's you know he's talking about the game as we as we go through the pod and he's looking over his shoulder to watch it you have these out of body moments and, and to try and do an interview whilst in your head thinking i cannot believe i'm here doing this i'm very grateful for peter for his time and and you know i'm proud of that i'm part of that interview and i hope everyone out there uh, enjoyed it because He's got an amazing story and, and any young journalist out there, including myself, has to take what he says on board about attacking a story. And, and if you're going to tell a story that everyone else is telling, go about it differently. You know, find out who they spoke to and take a different twist on it. Make contacts. And, and that locker room question was important because it is a hard skill to go up to people who don't necessarily want to talk and are tired after a game and, and they want to just go home to get something out of them and get that quote that makes a story. So I learned a lot from Peter there. And, you know, who, who knew? He, he, he's been to a cricket game. I'm going to call him a, an official cricket fan. So uh, the, London's going to enjoy him. The UK's going to enjoy him. He's going to be over there for about a week doing the NFL live tour. So if you can still get tickets for that, I don't know. But go check him out. Go meet him. He's a very friendly guy. Um, it was cool. We were in Boston a few days before that. The, him and his friend Don Banks went to the Red Sox game. They stuck it out till the 12th inning when there was a walk-off of Boston. And we had some beers. And Peter's got that beer part in his column. And I've got to say, he, he recommends the best beers. I had two, two recommendations from him, and they were both very, very nice. I just want to talk quickly about the NBA games I've been to. Boston-Cleveland... Cleveland overwhelmed the Celtics. This was the biggest game left on the regular season schedule before it. But the Cavaliers came in, tired of the number one seed talk, and they blew out the Celtics. LeBron James, in the second quarter especially, was he looked like 25-year-old LeBron James. He was controlling the ball, playing the point forward position. He was beating his first man easily. He was getting to the glass. He was finishing in contact. A lot of and-ones. He was banking shots, he was hitting threes, and watching him live, the one thing you really notice about him is his passing. The two-handed sidearm pass, shooting it across to the extra man that's open after the rotations on defense have gone out of whack. Waiting for Kevin Love or Channing Fry, someone to curl off that side screen from the corner that they do so much. Everyone knows it's going to happen, but if your man is wide open, LeBron just fires it in for an easy layup or dunk. Everything about him, he made the block as well. He, he, he had this double play where he went forward, had the M1, came back on defense and blocked a shot. And his athleticism is beyond normal. Like you cannot, I cannot understand how he's still doing it after, I think he's played three seasons worth of playoff basketball now. 
and he's not had a serious injury. So the Cavaliers, if they play like that, undoubtedly they're going to walk through the Eastern Conference. But after that game, the Celtics lost to Atlanta. But the biggest story is that the Cavaliers went home and lost to Atlanta too. So there is a worry about them. They haven't played good defense all season, but that Celtic game was, for me, the best performance of the season. I asked a couple of players about that after the game. J.R. Smith, Kyle Korver both said, I think that's our best performance of the year, especially defensively. They were without Tristan Thompson, but offensive rebounds at the start of the game, they were getting them at will. It seemed like every time they missed, they were getting the rebound. And the TD Garden was getting a bit frustrated. They silenced the crowd in the second quarter till the end of the game. And this was supposed to be a playoff-type atmosphere. This was supposed to be the Celtics' way of stamping their authority on the Eastern Conference because they did have that one seed. So the Cavaliers, if they play like that, no problem. But they are having this inconsistency and they're still having troubles. So until that point, the Celtics did, a, did look overmatched, though. There was a time a couple of days before this at Madison Square Garden. The Celtics were playing at the Knicks and Jay Crowder was shooting in his warm-up. And there was a fan with a LeBron jersey on, waving the number 23 and shouting down to Crowder, Hey, Jay Crowder, you can't guard me. Look at my number. Look at my number. Crowder ignored it, but it became reality a few days later in Boston. I've also been to the Knicks, and I wouldn't recommend going to the Knicks right now. I'd recommend going to the Garden and then probably turning around and leaving again. There is no energy in Madison Square Garden. It's the most neutral crowd I've, I've witnessed in, in American sports since I've watched games live. If there was an alley-oop from Rondo to Butler, I watched the Bulls game, there was cheers. The Knicks fans loved it. They, they just, they, I think they miss seeing good basketball and, they, and the road team is more important right now. I spoke to Sasha Vujicic before the game. I know it's not a big name and I know no one's worried about his story. He did date Maria Sharapova, I think, so boo-hoo. And he said he wasn't happy with how Jeff Hornacek handled the situation this season and, and he knew that Hornacek didn't like his game. So to say that, first of all, means that you know, he's not happy. He was brought in in the fourth quarter for a couple of minutes, but then he was yanked again for Ron Brown, the Wichita State legend, who is, who is the sole fun thing to watch, I think, aside from Kamala Anthony shooting 40 times a game at the moment for the Knicks. Vujicic went to the bench, went to the bench screaming. He was going at it at Jeff Hornacek. Continued throughout the timeout that was uh, about a minute later. He had an argument with an assistant coach and he sat back down and his towel was over his head and that was it for his night. So you see the cracks in the franchise, but most of the players I spoke to gave the normal spiel of we all get on together, we all like playing here, it's the best place to play basketball if you're winning, but they're not winning. Did they not notice that? Um, they did seem more relaxed as well when Anthony didn't play against the Celtics the first game. He played in the Bulls game a few days later, but the Celts game, there was a little bit more rhythm to the Knicks game because they, they knew that they didn't have to give it to Anthony and then watch him do his thing. Um, the Nets, I've got to say, it's like the Mets and Yankees. If you, if you want the underdog uh, and you want an exciting atmosphere, you go to City Field to watch the Mets. You don't go to Yankee Stadium. Well, Brooklyn Nets was fun. The Barclays Center was was a nice arena and the fans really connected with the players. During the warm-ups, there was so much interaction between player and fan. Uh, at one point, a couple, of, a couple of young guys were shouting to Randy Foy, can I get an assist, Randy? Can I get an assist? So Foy would chuck the ball to them. They would throw it back to Foy and he would shoot. 
the Nets uh, won the game against Orlando as well, and they look they look good. They look young, and and you you just notice that there is a different feel with that team. Uh, and I think that all comes down really to Kenny Atkinson, the coach. He's created an environment that that Jeff Hornacek just cannot do because he's he's ruled by Phil Jackson. He's ruled by which offense do I run today? Is PJ going to come down to practice and and show my guys how to run the triangle? So, you know, there's some young talent, Willie Hernan Gomez, Kuzminskas, but there's there's no direction. I don't feel where the, where that team is going, and it's going to be a long time yet before before the garden becomes a home venue again and not a neutral site. So thank you to my guest today on the US Sports Podcast, the editor-in-chief of the MMQB, Peter King. It was a whole lot of fun with Peter and I'm very grateful for his time. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to go and enjoy New York City now and uh, we'll have another special guest from New York on the podcast this week. But until that time, enjoy the end of the regular season in the NBA. Baseball's back, even though it feels like winter here in New York. But I am not going to complain about that. If you want to review the show, please do on iTunes, the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. Leave me a lovely review if you like what you heard. And you can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Max underscore Whittle. Until next time, enjoy the games. Enjoy the games.